1: This hour of the Casa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables.
2: Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to take a moment to thank members of our armed services who are joining us today. Thank you for being with us again. I also want to thank Voice America for making this and all of our other broadcasts available to millions of listeners around the world two times a week on the Voice America Business Channel. And finally, uh, let me offer a special welcome to KMET in Riverside in San Bernardino County, our newest affiliate station. Welcome to our growing network. Uh, My my guest today is one of our country's foremost legal experts when it comes to mounting a defense for a domestic terrorist. In 1995, Stephen Jones was appointed to serve as the lead defense counsel for the young man charged with the bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah building in Oklahoma City. Uh, Many experts are comparing this case that uh, is being prepared against Johard Tarnaev, the 19-year-old accused of the Boston Marathon bombing to the case against Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma. And Frankly, there's no better authority to explain what the defense's options are in what, to the person on the street, appears to be an open and shut case. But before he joins us, let me mention that Mr. Jones was born in Lafayette, Louisiana, and he grew up in Houston, Texas. He attended the University of Texas and received his law degree from the University of Oklahoma. In 1964, Jones was a personal assistant to Richard M. Nixon, and three years later, he found himself the legal counsel for the governor of Oklahoma and from 1970 to 74, he was also general counsel for the ACLU. Mr. Jones is known for representing many individuals who would otherwise find it difficult to get the defense that the law entitles them to. He represented Keith Green, Abby Hoffman, and defended Bobby Wayne Collins, a man accused of murdering an innocent family in their farmhouse. But he is perhaps best known for mounting a defense for Timothy McVeigh for the Oklahoma City bombing, a case where the eyewitness of exactly who was driving the rented truck that contained the bomb and also a great deal of the forensic evidence was inconsistent. And that might have been enough to cast doubt in many people's mind if not for the strong court of public opinion, which no matter how much we deny it, plays a important role in how investigations and verdicts become biased. Jones is the author of numerous law review articles and the book Other Unknown – the Oklahoma City bombing case and conspiracy. It's my pleasure to welcome to the program today one of our country's foremost defense scholars and lawyers, Mr. Stephen Jones. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Jones.
3: Thank you and for inviting me and in your gracious introduction.
2: Now... Uh, Let me start by saying I'm not a lawyer, and most of our listeners today are not lawyers, uh, so I wanted to open the program today by asking you to help us understand why this case against Johar Tarnayev isn't just a murder case. I mean, what makes this different from, say, a sniper in a bell tower or even the shootings at Sandy Hook?
3: Well, in terms of the public interest and the media coverage, there isn't really much difference. I mean, it's uh, on some networks, uh, 24-7 coverage. It's an interesting case. It has all of the drama that uh, the public is interested in, uh, the victims, the bizarre nature of the uh, conduct ascribed to the defendants, the carnage, uh, injuries major sporting event, and the infliction of harm on innocent people, probably beyond any control that they might have over their destiny. So public-wise and media-wise, there's probably not much difference. The difference, of course, is how we treat those two cases in the courts of law. And often they take, uh, at least superficially, similar parallel tracks but in reality they're much different
2: so explain to us what's different about this i mean why isn't this just a murder case in the court of law
3: well it, it is a murder case of course and that will be charged but it's a special kind of murder case it's a murder case based upon the use of weapons of mass destruction Uh, Tim McVeigh was the first American citizen, or first person in any respect in the United States, charged with the use or conspiracy to use weapons of mass destruction. So even though we might think of a sniper such as Charles Whitman at the University of Texas using uh, high-powered rifles or automatic weapons as were used in uh, Aurora uh, or even in Sandy Hook, Uh, Those aren't classified as weapons of mass destruction. Improvised explosive devices, um, some type of dirty bomb, biological uh, agents, chemical agents that can cause death and destruction are clearly uh, weapons of mass destruction. Secondly, these cases, unlike the sniper case or the Aurora case or the Sandy Hook case, those cases are people that are seriously emotionally or mentally disturbed. In the case of the Boston Massacre, through the Marathon and the Oklahoma City bombing, or 9-11, you have an ideological component. You also have something else, which again, distinguish them, you have more than one actor. Uh, The number of actors may never be fully known, but there is some type of support group out there, either before or after, So those are the, the crucial differences. And then, of course, within the courts, most murder cases are prosecuted by state courts. This will be prosecuted by federal court. The case involving the young MIT officer who tragically lost his life, that is a classic state murder case. I would not expect that to be prosecuted in federal court.
2: So what causes it to go up to the federal level? Is that, as you describe, the fact that a weapon of mass destruction as defined by the law was used, there's an ideological component, and that the individual was not acting alone? Are those the three criteria that would elevate it to the federal level, or is there something else?
3: Well, I think an individual could act alone, but the nearest parallel that I can give you is that i think the country was surprised when president kennedy was assassinated in dallas in nineteen sixty three to learn that there was no existing federal crime unless the president was happened to be shot in the district of columbia or on a federal installation that uh, mister oswald or others associated with it could only be prosecuted in state courts uh, you could conjure up a case of uh... Oswald's assassination interfered with the president's exercise of his civil rights, but that would have a maximum of 10 years and clearly would not meet the enormity of the crime. But in the last 20 years, uh, particularly since uh, the mid-90s, the Congress has responded to initiatives of the Department of Justice and the executive, and sometimes on their own, to uh, make more complete the coverage of federal prosecutions of cases that are basically terror cases because the federal government has the money and the resources both investigative and prosecutorial many states do not
2: and the thing that makes it a terror case then is the weapon of mass destruction and the ideological component
3: yes um without the ideological component it would be more like a regular murder case. For example, uh, the case in, uh, and this is ancient history, but it proves the point, the case in 1955 of the man that planted a bomb on an airliner and blew it up, that was for simple greed. He bought a life insurance on his mother, his mother was a passenger, and 43 other people lost their life. But it wasn't uh, a use of a weapon of mass destruction. It wasn't ideological, and he acted alone. And so he was prosecuted by the state of Colorado and and ultimately executed.
2: But as you point out, the assassination of the MIT officer, that might well be tried in uh, the state of Massachusetts. Is that correct, or will this be combined?
3: I, I suspect that Massachusetts will ask to try that case And and, then there are solid policy reasons for that.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we have to take a short commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the steps that the defense will go through to build an effective case. You're listening to the Costa Report.
1: This Legal Minute is brought to you by Nolan, Hammerley Etienne, and Haas. Experienced attorneys providing professional legal services to the Central Coast for 85 years.
4: Hello, this is attorney Stephen Wagner with your Legal Minute. Have you ever said to yourself there ought to be a law for that? Well, often there is. In this segment, I will address the issue of social media and hiring practices, and specifically the potential employer's right to snoop around in social media networks to gather information about the potential employee. From the employer's perspective, social networking sites must seem like a treasure trove or petri dish, overflowing with valuable information. The hot-button legal issue that has arisen recently relates to the employer's request, or worse yet, demand for the candidate's password and or username. It is this conduct by the employer that has sparked outcry and controversy based on privacy rights, and this has led to legislation and the enactment of laws that now prohibit employers from making such demands or requests. Such is the case in California and several other states. It would now seem that the lid has been placed back on the Petri dish. However, it is important to note that employers still have a right to access all public information. That is, anything the potential or current employee chooses to share, publish, or make public. In other words, these laws do not protect job seekers from their own stupidity or indiscretions that they decide to gloat about by publishing their escapades on the World Wide Web. So it seems that discretion is still the better part of valor. This is Stephen Wagner, and that's your Legal Minute.
1: Brought to you by Nolan, Hammerley, Etienne & Haas. Selected in 2013 as one of the top law firms in the United States by Martindale-Hubbell.
2: If you own a fine European car like a Mercedes, Volvo, BMW, Audi, Volkswagen, or Mini Cooper, you're probably picky about who takes care of it. You want only a top-level shop that's been around for a while. So you'll want to go to Specialized Auto. The service at Specialized Auto has won a bunch of awards, and that includes being named one of the top ten shops in America by Motor Age magazine. And since they've been around for over 30 years, thousands of satisfied customers can tell you why they
5: take their cars to Specialized.
2: So if you have a Mercedes, Volvo, BMW, Audi, Volkswagen, or Mini Cooper, and you're tired of those long drives to the dealer for service, consider the shop that gives you friendly, local service with all the quality of the dealer and more.
1: Specialized Auto. European car owners count on Specialized Auto for complete car care. They also seem to like the free shuttles and that free hand car wash with any service. New customers get 40 bucks off, and regular customers 5% off any service when they mention KSCO at Specialized Auto in Santa Cruz and freedom there's big there's bigger and then there's the world's biggest garage sale this saturday at twin lakes church in aptos Hi, this is Pastor Renee. All proceeds benefit Second Harvest Food Bank. Last year, the world's biggest garage sale raised nearly $23,000 to help feed families. This year, there's more amazing stuff than ever. Items from a thousand garages, all in one place. The world's biggest garage sale. Saturday, 8 a.m., Twin Lakes Church on Cabrillo College Drive. Find a bargain and feed a family. www.tlc.org.
2: You. There's only one, and we exist because of you. To provide the care you need when you need it, Physicians Medical Group has over 300 providers just in Santa Cruz County. That's over 300 teammates focused on the one, the only, you. With over 42 specialties and 100 locations, you'll find the right provider for you. Find your teammate, your Physicians Medical Group care provider, by visiting our website, PMGSCC.com. We'll mm-hmm. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is expert defense counsel Stephen Jones. And before the break, you were making the point that in the case of the Boston Marathon bombing, uh, this was elevated to the federal level because of the use of a weapon of mass destruction and the fact that the perpetrator was motivated by an ideology and may not have acted alone. So in in cases like the bombing in Oklahoma City and the Boston Marathon cases, it, it, it seems like the defense has... Uh, three ways that they can go. Either they have to challenge the evidence and create doubt uh, or vindicate the accused or, or or they have to find some legal technicality such as uh, cases where evidence is obtained without a search warrant which sometimes causes a case to fall apart or, or they're going to have to plead some variation of insanity. It could be anything from brainwashing to Stockholm Syndrome. Who, who knows what they'll drum up. But from a layman's perspective, does that pretty much sum it up? Are they going to have to challenge the evidence or they're going to have to basically uh, say that he's had some form of insanity sanity I mean will that work
4: <clears throat>
3: you've pretty well summarized the options on what I would call stage one that is the guilt innocence uh, I mean there's some others such as alibi but that doesn't uh, really seem applicable here based upon what we know publicly mm-hmm. the other aspect though of, of the defense preparation uh, and sometimes this becomes the overriding concern whether appropriate or inappropriate, is the sentencing or stage two. In other words, our first objective is to save the client's life, so maybe we should concentrate on avoiding the death penalty and forego the trial on the question of guilt innocence. Those are very difficult decisions for lawyers and clients to make
2: so uh, let me understand this uh, the first thing that they're going to say is we our first moral and ethical and legal obligation is to save the client's life and then back away from there and say is is it viable to save their life by proving that they there is some form of innocence here
3: well you put your your finger on the the precise uh, conflict and the dilemma Um, there are some, and and in Mr. McVeigh's case, I I put myself in this category, who believed that there was no realistic chance of avoiding the death penalty if he was convicted of the charges in the indictment. Mm -hmm. Because it, it simply did not make sense that the jury would find by implication that he killed 168 people and not give him the death penalty since he would be eligible for it. Now, The other argument is, no, um, conviction is foregone, and uh, so let's concentrate on saving his life. Now, having said that, the other side of the coin is what happened to Terry Nichols in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, Terry Nichols uh, created the legal precedent of being convicted of first-degree murders of 160 people and received life instead of death. So, and that's in southeastern Oklahoma, a very conservative area part of the state, and his defense counsel that handled the second stage uh, did a magnificent job for him. Uh, The prosecution in the first stage did an excellent job because they convicted him of murder, whereas in the federal trial, he had only been convicted of manslaughter. So my assumption that, You can't win a vacation of the death penalty or a life sentence unless you challenge the merits may have been a bridge too far. However, in the Terry Nichols state case, they did challenge the government's evidence. So they had they they had two bites at the apple, so to speak.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So but they they did create doubt within the evidence, even though he was convicted.
3: I think so. You know, jurors are supposed to use the same standard in the first and second stage, but you find a lot of jurors who, notwithstanding what they say during voir dire, will, in fact, apply the guilt beyond a reasonable doubt standard on guilt or innocence, and in the death penalty stage, it's beyond any doubt. I mean, subjectively, They don't want to put someone to death unless they're absolutely convinced the person deserves death because it only takes one juror to hold out and it's life. And in in Mr. Nichols' case, a majority of the jury wanted to impose the death penalty apparently, but three or four jurors said no. And it's seldom that one juror can stand up to the other 11, but three or four can stand up, and that's what they did, so it became life.
2: Right, and and I can see a case where a juror would say, "Look, I have a very, very minuscule amount of doubt here, but not enough to convict him. You know, not go along with convicting him as guilty, but I, it certainly is enough to not want to sentence someone to death." Yeah. I mean, I, there's a big gray area here, and I could see someone feeling that way. Uh, and so that the so that the sentence might not look consistent with what uh, what the conviction is. Now, so let's talk let's talk about the easiest thing, is some of the legal technicalities that might cause a case like the uh, the one being built against Joe Hart to fall apart. Um, from your vantage point, do you see anything there? How about this big debate over when his Miranda rights were read to him? Does is that going to make any difference?
3: Well, it ordinarily doesn't make any difference because. If the emergency exception is used by law enforcement, uh, almost, well, I would say undoubtedly the government will not try to use that evidence against him in the case in chief. Now, there's also another factor here. I don't believe the government, from what I know, would be able to sustain that a true emergency existed as contemplated by the Supreme Court in the Quarles decision, which was a case in New York in which the police spontaneously asked someone, as I recall, about the gun, and and he hadn't been Mirandized. Whereas here in the Boston case, we have a man, uh, 19 years old, seriously wounded in a hospital in which there's no other apparent evidence of anyone else being involved. And the interrogation goes on for several hours. That's uh, that's a reach to claim that that's an emergency exception.
2: But they did have the whole city of Boston in lockdown.
3: Yes, but they released the lockdown. That's yeah,
2: they- well, actually, that plays to your to the case that you were just making because when they released the lockdown, when they knew where he was, uh, that almost says that there was no more state of emergency.
3: The FBI in the in the Boston case, and I'm sure they had consultation with other federal agencies and state officials, they did two uh, remarkable things that enabled the case apparently to be resolved. First was the statement by the special agent in charge that someone out there knows who these are people are. A friend, a neighbor, an employer, a family member. So that's a direct appeal to the public. Help us. If you know who these people are, help us. That's a different type of appeal than, say, the FBI 10 Most Wanted list. The other thing, although this probably was not contemplated at the time, but it had the effect when they released the lockdown order, that is to say, they uh, at uh, 6 o'clock that day, I think that was the time where they said, okay, you can come out of your house. Uh-huh. That's what led the man to find the blood in the backyard that led to the boat. Yes. So by releasing it, And and particularly with that special appeal, what they created was a city that was on alert, that was looking for evidence, and they found it.
2: And and they allowed people to start moving around, uh, and and possibly with the idea that he would, he himself would start moving around. Um, We have to take another break, and when we come back, we're going, going to talk about whether a brainwashing or mental illness defense is likely to succeed. You're listening to the Costa Report.
5: Be part of the conversation and join us on Facebook. Take advantage of special opportunities and interesting insight while sharing your thoughts on the topics discussed on the Costa Report and beyond. Like us at Facebook.com forward slash Rebecca D. Costa. That's facebook.com forward slash Rebecca D. Costa. Do you have a thought or an insight that you want to be heard by millions of people across the country? Do you have a perspective or an idea that makes you ask yourself, why is no one else talking about this? Join us on Facebook to have a chance to win a mighty minute. 60 seconds uninterrupted to share your thoughts on the subject of
3: your choice with people across the entire country. So join us now at facebook.com forward slash Rebecca D. Costa. That's facebook.com forward slash Rebecca D. Costa.
6: Mother's Day is next week and Pro Flowers is offering an amazing special. 100 stunning blooms for mom plus a free glass vase for just 19.99. Go to proflowers.com, click on the radio microphone in the upper right corner and enter the secret code 0909. But hurry, this incredible deal expires this Friday. Flower prices will skyrocket next week. Order now from Pro Flowers to get huge savings. You pick the delivery date, and it's guaranteed one hundred colorful blooms for mom sent fresh from the field. And guaranteed to stay fresh and beautiful for at least seven full days for only nineteen ninety-nine and will include a free glass face with every order. Remember, flower prices can double, even triple next week. And this incredible special expires this Friday. The only way to get this. This amazing deal is to go to proflowers.com, click on the radio microphone in the upper right corner, and enter the secret code 0909.
5: This Mother's Day, show mom how
6: much you love her by taking her to Severino's Spectacular Champagne Brunch on May 12th from 10
5: a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Feast on hand-carved Angus Prime Rib, Chicken Cordon Bleu, Traditional Eggs Benedict, a variety of omelets, Belgian waffles, and so much more.
2: Take advantage of all of this for just $39 per adult, $16 per child between the ages of 6 and 12, and children 5 and under are free. We'll also be serving Mother's Day dinner
5: from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. to make your Severino's reservations, call
4: 688-8987 and we'll see you there.
7: We've all heard the term baby boomer referring to those born from 1946 to 1964. There are an estimated 80 million baby boomers with the first wave hitting the social security and medicare systems in recent years with more to follow. Many healthcare experts are predicting epidemics of Alzheimer's, type 2 diabetes, heart disease and cancer among this group. However, these impending epidemics can be averted as there is a new group emerging. This group we call the baby bloomers because despite their chronological age, they are still physically fit, active, working, and playing. They've heard Dr. Wallach's message regarding diet, lifestyle, and nutritional supplementation. So while many around them diminish in health and vitality, they are blossoming and blooming into vibrant, healthy, on-the-go people. Wouldn't you rather be a longevity baby bloomer? For more information or to order, call Andy or Phyllis Anderson at 888-245-0300. That's 888-245-0300. Tune in to the Sentinel Radio Program Saturday morning at 8
1: a.m. right here on AM1080 KSCO. Brought to you by First Church of Christ Scientist Monterey. Come into our Christian Science Community Reading Room and Bookstore and find comfort from the challenges you're facing. We have the resources that will connect you with your god given substance find help now our address is 780 Abrego street in monterey reach out for this help today come in and visit or call 831-372-5076 372-5076
2: welcome back to the costa report i'm rebecca costa and my guest is legendary defense counsel mr stephen jones so let's talk about the fact that um this is a young boy who becomes radicalized by his older brother? Uh, so there's a lot of talk about using a brainwashing defense. Is there such a thing as brainwashing uh, in terms of a, a youth? has it has this ever been tried?
3: Very rarely. Uh, I mean, there you have to find a pig <clears throat> to get the jury to vote not guilty, but there is no as such brainwashing defense. I mean, there's some very technical, highly, um rare defenses such as sleepwalking, uh, but usually uh, you're talking about diminished mental responsibility where someone may not be guilty of, say, murder, but they could be guilty of manslaughter. Uh, so it's not a complete exoneration, but it is something that's available to the defense attorney in the right circumstance.
5: But I have
2: to say, anyone who's raised two children knows that the younger one has diminished Capacity. I mean, they do everything that their older sibling tells them to do. And and, and so the fact is, is if there's any parents on the jury, they would completely understand how vulnerable the younger child is, don't you think?
3: Well, I think they would. Now, again, the circumstances here are uh, somewhat uh, confused. I mean, it's one thing to go with your older brother to plant a bomb. It's another thing to go with your older brother and kill an innocent policeman that's just sitting in the car that's not obstructing you, and you compound that if it's true that they hijacked and kidnapped uh, an automobile and the driver, and then had a shootout in which one of them was killed. Uh, those, frankly, if true, are pretty serious offenses, and I don't think the fact that you're a younger brother is going to save you from the consequences of the law if the government convinces the jury that that's what happened.
2: And yet, on the other hand, we had we had all this video uh, of Patricia Hearst walking into a bank with her captors.
3: Well, and she tried the brainwashing uh, defense, but it didn't work. She was convicted and she had a very able lawyer. She had the F. Lee Bailey and Al Johnson and uh, she had a favorable environment uh, in San Francisco where the case was tried. She came from a prominent family who could certainly afford the defense. But in fairness uh, to all of that, she did receive a relatively light sentence. She later was uh, paroled and ultimately pardoned.
2: Mm -hmm. So how does the uh, defense team go about proving diminished capacity in a case like this? What would they look for?
3: Well, they would have to get um, really good psychiatric and psychological uh, experts uh, to conduct very complete and thorough background investigation of the mental state of the defendant both before and during the time of the offense. The classic example of that before the law was changed was the brilliant defense of uh, John Hinckley, who was accused of attempting to assassinate President Reagan. And as you know, he was found not guilty by a jury in the District of Columbia. But the defense in that case had an advantage. The burden of proof to prove him insane was actually upon, I mean, to prove him sane was actually upon the government.
7: Mm-hmm.
3: The law was changed after that, so that now the burden uh, for the government is much lighter and effectively is on the defendant. Now, in terms of Judy Clark and her success in representing both the person described as the Unabomber and the Tucson shootings in which Congresswoman Gifford was injured, uh, Judy, who is a brilliant lawyer and, and a great tactician, uh, placed a heavy emphasis upon the mental disorder and confusion uh, of her two clients. Yes. And persuaded the government uh, not to seek the death penalty. It was a brilliant piece of detective, uh, not detective, a brilliant piece of advocacy and lawyering.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, now, there's no evidence that either of these brothers had any violent episodes prior to this. Um, what does a defense team make out of that?
3: Well, I think it's much too early to say that there's nothing out there that didn't influence them. Uh, again uh, the the case involving the um, Tucson uh, murderer and the Unabomber both had, particularly in the case of the Tucson, clear mental uh, deficiencies, uh, issues, and problems of a first rate magnitude. Uh-huh. The Unabomber was a little different, but there again, the Unabomber had been subject to some unique experiences at Harvard. In a a study uh, which was broadcast uh, and received considerable publicity at the time, which may have impacted negatively his cognitive powers and his reasoning and critical judgment, yes. again, Judy Clark was able to use that
2: right so so uh this may boil down to if it ever goes to court and that's another thing we we should talk about in in a, a minute here uh if it ever does go to court this just might boil down to uh uh the you know, one expert against another expert in terms of, you know, the diminished capacity. One, You know, obviously the prosecution will have an expert that says, uh, no, that's clearly not the case. And he was conscious of what was going on at any point, could have turned the wheel and not driven off the cliff. And, uh, and of course, the uh, defense will say, well, we're going to line up our experts that say that uh, he was cognitively uh, not capable or uh, came under such enormous pressures that could not, you know, respond in a rational way um, although it was interesting in the scott peterson case a, a very different case uh, just a, st- a murder case i say just a murder case but not a mass murder case um the, it seemed that in that particular case the fact that there was no history of any violence whatsoever played a really big role in uh, determining how the jury uh, saw the case
3: yes and you have a very <clears throat> exceptional situation in California. You have, uh, throughout the state, first-rate jury consultants who work with the prosecution or the defense or both. I mean, the same consultant doesn't work both sides in the same trial. Uh-huh. But California is, is very used to that type of litigation support. And selecting the jury is so important. And, and the two classic examples of that are the ultimate result in... um uh, the so-called uh, Dan White Twinkie defense. Uh, the Twinkie defense was a soundbite. That's not how Dan White only got eight years for murdering Moscone and Harvey Milk. Yes. And then the opposite, you have the Scott Peterson case in which, frankly, uh, the media went into overdrive on on the character of Scott Peterson when in reality, in terms of evidence, it wasn't the strongest case. He had good lawyers.
2: Yes, he did. He did. Um, So so let me ask you quickly here about the necessity defense, which is something that uh, was used in the Oklahoma bombing trial. As I understand it, McVeigh wanted to claim that uh, he was in imminent danger from his government. Um, Is there any chance that that gets any play here?
3: Probably not. We advised Mr. McVeigh that the necessity defense was not applicable at all in his case and that Judge Mage undoubtedly would sustain uh, the government's efforts to exclude that defense and and that that simply was not um, um, realistic. Plus, uh, when you use the necessity defense, you're conceding that you did what you're accused of. In Mr. McVeigh's case, the government's case was circumstantial only and it had some serious weaknesses that developed uh, over the course of the two years before the trial. And truthfully, in my opinion, uh, Mr. McVeigh's jury results could have been much different, but for the Dallas morning news disclosures and ABC primetime and, and the playboy article on the defense chronology, which relied upon stolen documents from the defense. And had that not, um, uh, been so pervasively received in the Denver community, I'm not sure Mr. McVeigh would have been convicted as he was.
2: I read a great deal about that trial and uh, I happen to agree with you 100%. I think that the media played a big role in uh, affecting that sentencing and I think that's, that wasn't right. Um, okay, so we're in it. We're just going to take our last break right now. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Costa Report.
5: Just about everyone knows that fruits and vegetables are good for our health, but not everyone knows how to build a healthier plate. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, a cookbook author and culinary expert. For each meal, nutrition experts recommend filling half of your plate with fruits and veggies. Whether it's fresh berries with your breakfast cereal, a wrap filled with your favorite roasted vegetables for lunch, or a medley of crunchy veggies for a pre-dinner nibble, Dole provides the freshest and highest quality produce available. When you load up on all the nutritional good stuff, you give your meal an instant boost of color, flavor, and texture, plus vitamins and minerals and fiber, everything your body needs to succeed. For nutritional inspiration and to learn more about Dole's fresh, whole, and cut vegetables and a full line of berries, visit Dole.com. With Dole as your partner in health, the possibilities are endless. Visit Dole.com. I'm here
2: today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars. Now, there's a number of ways you can taste wines at the tasting room. Talk to us a little bit about that.
4: Yeah, we currently
3: have nine different wines on our tasting menu, and we really want it to be an experience where you get to taste the wine that you want to taste. So if you want to taste Pinot, you can really focus your flight around that. If you wanted to focus on... The bubbles, we have three different sparklings that will allow you to build your flight that way. Or if you came in and you just wanted to taste one wine, we would uh, have it set up for you to be able to do that as well.
2: Now, what's a flight?
3: A flight is basically a combination of small tastes of different wines.
4: If you wanted to taste all of our different Chardonnays, you could taste the 2007 Chardonnay, the 2008, and the 2009, and we would line you up with an individual taste of each of them.
2: Thank you for being with us again, Scott.
4: Thank you, Rebecca.
2: It's time to celebrate our heroes. Hi, this is Camilla Blutian with the American Red Cross Santa Cruz County Chapter. Here to invite you to join us at our annual Heroes Breakfast on May 15th at the Coconut Grove Ballroom at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. The Red Cross Chapter will recognize local individuals whose actions exemplify the true spirit of heroism.
5: The Heroes Breakfast raises money for the local Red Cross Chapter's life-saving programs and services.
2: To get a full listing of this year's heroes and to purchase your tickets, please visit santacruzredcross.org. SCC Red Cross
5: some things were meant to last, like elegant jewelry, fine watches, and unique gifts you can always find at Dell Williams Jewelers in Santa Cruz. Hello, I am Emily Coonerty, along with my daughter Daisy. Yeah. Our family-owned Dell Williams Jewelers has been providing Central Coast residents with beautiful things that last since 1927. Listen to what we have that will last for you right now.
1: Visit Dell Williams on Friday, May 3rd and Saturday, May 4th for a very special event featuring the dazzling creations of Alex Sepkis. The work of Alex Sepkis is truly original. Each piece of jewelry is created under a microscope. No small detail is compromised. Stop by Dell Williams for this exclusive trunk show event.
5: When you want to find... Elegant jewelry, a fine watch, or a unique gift that must last. Look first at Dell Williams Jewelers on Pacific Avenue in downtown Santa Cruz since nineteen twenty seven or on the web at Dellwilliams.com. When only the finest will do, we are Dell Williams Jewelers. When it comes to your business, we are all business. Hi, I'm Michelle Bassey with Wells Fargo Bank. Wells Fargo has teamed up with the Santa Cruz chapter of SCORE to bring you small business counseling sessions on KSCO Tuesday mornings at 7.45 and evenings at 5.15. Tune in and learn how successful business people walk their talk. When it comes to your business, our Wells Fargo-powered SCORE counseling sessions on KSCO
2: really are all business. Tune in and learn. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is defense attorney who was charged with with representing Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma bombing case, Mr. Stephen Jones. And before the break, we were talking about the role that the media played in the sentencing of Timothy McVeigh. So... Let's uh, let's move along here and, and talk about a plea deal. Uh, it seems like the best case scenario is just to have Johar give up as much intelligence as he can in exchange for a life sentence with no parole and, and to skip all this agony and expense of a trial. Uh, but in a high-profile case like this, is there pressure to have a public spectacle?
3: I wouldn't say there's there's a pressure to have a public spectacle. I believe that the public would be satisfied if... He entered a plea of guilty after thoroughly studying all the alternatives and listening very carefully to his lawyers. I mean, the federal public defender in Boston has an outstanding reputation. And of course, Judy Clark has been brought on and, and uh, Judy's one of the premier defense lawyers in this country. So he has excellent representation. Um, it may be possible that he has information. That would be of vital importance to the organs of state security, to the prosecution, uh, defense department, uh, the state department, and so forth. And those are significant assets uh, that he can trade uh, with the government uh, in return for some mitigation of his sentence. I do have to say, however, that it's a tough sale. Uh, the The video image... And the testimony, apparently, from witnesses places him right at the scene and having a backpack and the inference being that one of the two bombs was in the backpack and it is alleged that it was that particular uh, backpack that killed some of the victims. Plus, there's the question of, of involvement with others. That's different than the Oklahoma City bombing In the Oklahoma City bombing, there was no possibility that Mr. McVeigh would receive any consideration unless he was willing to identify the others. And even then, it wasn't clear. In Terry Nichols' case, the government, so it has been reported, was always willing to make a deal with Terry Nichols for a life sentence in return for a plea of guilty and his cooperation. Uh, For whatever reason, Mr. Nichols chose not to do that in either the state case or the federal case, and he was um, convicted, but he received a life sentence. So he didn't um, gamble um, mistakenly. I mean, he he ran the risk, and it, it succeeded. This case... Uh, it's going to be a difficult assessment for the defendant and and his lawyers. There's no question about that.
2: What if Johar doesn't know anything? Let's just say he only knows what his brother told him, and it's not significant. Is there a case, uh, can you can you imagine a case where the prosecutors just basically say, uh, the guy doesn't know anything, he's 19, we don't want to bring this up as a death sentence. Um, in the state of Massachusetts, they don't have the death penalty. So the fa- the fact that the federal court can sentence him to death may not sit well with the state of Massachusetts. Um, I, I just, I'm, I'm not sure that a plea deal isn't the best thing here.
3: No, you, you've you, again. You've touched a central issue, and that is uh, an unanswered question: is whether the federal government can seek the death penalty in a state that itself does not recognize the death penalty, and and that that is one of the strong cards that the defense has to play. I mean, people talk about a change of venue, but you have to consider: does the defense really want to move it out of Massachusetts?
2: Boy, I wouldn't want to. I, I would not move it out of Massachusetts because they're in the state of Massachusetts. They feel very passionately and strongly about not having the death penalty, and I think that would really be an encouragement for the feds to uh, to to cut a plea deal and and take that whole debate off the table.
3: The fact that his uh, brother uh was killed um it makes it frankly easier uh to argue that the younger man should receive life mm-hmm. and you've said uh, you've you've noted that Massachusetts itself does not approve of the death penalty and it it um uh, the defense is not without resources here um one of the things and and one has to word this carefully but you don't have the carnage. Uh, loss of any life is to be uh, deplored, and, and particularly if it's violent. But you don't have the carnage here that you had at Sandy Hook or Oklahoma City or 9-11 or Tucson or Aurora or Columbine. Um, that's not to in any way say this isn't a serious offense. Of course, but that is the reality that prosecutors and defense lawyers and judges have to look at.
2: And we also have the case of the D.C. sniper. I mean, in the yes. D.C. sniper case, we had the older gentleman that did receive the death penalty, but the younger boy who was with him as part of that team uh, did not. He he received a life sentence.
3: That's that's true. And also, the trial will be sometime down the road, and and there is a growing public. Apathy towards the death penalty. I mean, it, it's not reflected in Texas or Oklahoma, perhaps, uh, although there's some indication that, that even Oklahoma jurors are becoming um, doubtful about the death penalty. But every time uh, uh, Barry Schneck can show that somebody has been put on death row, awaiting execution that is, in fact, legally uh, and, and factually innocent, uh, the death penalty support is eroded. I mean, it's a unique punishment, yeah. and if a mistake is made, it can't be recalled.
2: And we have also the problem with the federal, uh, the feds overriding the um, the state of Massachusetts, where there is no death penalty, and that all, whole situation gets sidestepped if it's if it's plead out. Now we have three friends uh, that uh, have. Uh, been arrested the authorities indicate that they took evidence and disposed of it and that evidence now has been recovered in landfills and uh, they've been arrested um, now and now that they've been arrested i i would imagine that they have a lot more incentive to cooperate with the defense team or do do i have that wrong
3: it's hard to say the the three persons arrested again they have able counsel but they're in a very very legally precarious situation, not only in terms of their liberty, but also whether they can even remain in this country at the end of their sentence. Um, I think that the three of them are here on visas. They will clearly be deported if they plead guilty and are found guilty and convicted and uh, serve time. And so you have a a promising life for a 19-year-old from a a part of the world that is rife with violence who uh, mistakenly and in in lack of critical judgment helped a friend of his when the thing to do was probably to come forward.
2: You know, anybody who's raised boys, uh, and I am one of them, knows that at 19 years old, boy is their judgment off. I, I, I mean, I, I I wanted to pick up the phone and call my son and say thank you, thank you for just getting caught with a beer.
3: Yeah, it, it's it it really when when the age of majority was lowered to eighteen, that was a mistake. I, I mean, the truth of the matter, there are people in their twenties and older that don't have critical judgment, but but eighteen is pretty young, and I personally think it was a mistake
2: yeah I agree with you. Now, before we let you go today, is is there a way that our audience can keep up with what you have to say as the case unfolds and also get information on your book?
3: Well, uh, the book is out of print, uh, but it's usually available on on eBay. There are two editions of the book, one written before Mr. McVeigh weighed confidentiality and one written afterward. They're both uh, the best way to, s- to give them apart is there's no hardback. the second edition after he waived the attorney-client privilege, and unfortunately, no index. If you have a book that I wrote that has an index, it's the first edition.
2: Well, that is a good way to tell it. Well, that's our program today, but before we say goodbye, I want to thank you, um, Mr. Jones, for the personal sacrifices you've made to assure that justice is served on both sides. Thank you, Mr. Jones.
3: You're welcome, and thank you for your professionalism in this broadcast.
2: If your station is leaving us after the first hour and you'd like to comment on today's program, you can reach us at RebeccaCosta.com on our contact page and also on Facebook and Twitter. We, I, I have to tell you, I'd love to hear from you. So I hope you'll just take a moment out of your week to share your thoughts with me. And while you're at the website, take a moment to link today's interview to your friends and help change the face of radio news. My guest next week is former senator from North Dakota, senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and champion of biofuels and other clean energy technologies, Mr. Byron Dorgan will be here. He's going to tell us whether our country is really on the road to energy independence or not and why oil, not guns, may represent our greatest security threat. Don't miss Byron Dorgan next week, right here on the only weekly news magazine that you can count on week after week to put principles ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for the second hour of the Costa Report where we take your calls and find out what you think should happen to the Austin Marathon bomber. Are you happy with how the case has been handled to this point? If you listen to talk shows in the news today, you might come away with the impression that the root of all our problems are politics or economics. The right blames the left, the left blames the right, and everyone blames the Chinese. But take a hard look at where the blame game has gotten us. That's why I'm asking you to pick up a copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It's available in paperback and as an e-book, too. And if you don't have time to read, there's an audio version so you can listen in your car or even on the beach. The book explains why complexity produces gridlock and what we have to do to start moving forward again. So pick up a copy of The Watchman's Rattle at a bookstore near you or online retailer. Do it today.